0: Welcome to the new healthcare economy where everyone wins for a change. Employers, consumers, primary care physicians, outcomes, shareholders, even our communities all win with costs dropping 20 to 60%. This unstoppable direct contracting movement bypasses the big middles with their crooked game boards, devious rule book, rigged dice, and purchased referees. I'm Rob Barshop, and I'm glad you're here. Imagine you're playing tag football, but the other team gets a deflated football, and you don't. And now unretired Tom Brady comes out of the locker room as a ringer, and his receiver is Gronkowski, and he knows deflated balls well, these two guys, and they also know the receiver. So imagine also three J.J. Watts are on their front line, and the field is slanted, so you have to play uphill, and they get downhill the whole game. That's how HCA, Tenet, and the other for-profit hospitals have to compete against 70% 70% of the hospitals who pay no taxes, charity hospitals, not a city tax, not a county tax, not a state tax, not a school property tax, none of them. They are far the biggest kahuna in every metro and a property owner for, for sure, I guess, maybe other than the city or the state or federal park lands. But hello, they're also missing payment on the mother of all taxes, federal taxes. How is that a level playing field with advantages of 20 to 30% margin difference in a low... Margin industry. In fact, hospitals are traditionally single digit margin. And now they got 20 to 30%. That's big. In fact, that's bigger than JJ Watt. And I stood next to that flesh mountain in an elevator and it's a scary ride because the elevator was groaning the whole time, literally. So wait, Ron, those charities, they give indigent care and HCA and tenant don't help the poor. Okay, myths and legends, myths and legends. We may have a show just about myths and legends, but why then? In a recent 2022 John Hawkins study led by a friend of the show, Guy, does this happen? Well, tax-exempt charity hospitals give two, EWO percent of overall expenses to charity and for-profits double that, four percent. How does that so? Well, nonprofit big submit this annual statement of community benefits every year to their home metro to make the case for generosity, but more importantly, to get their continued tax-exempt 501c3 status. The IRS definition of a community benefit standard is to demonstrate very simply that it provides benefits to a class of persons that is broad enough to benefit the community, pretty broad language. They don't want any ambitious local DA or state attorney general to sue and strip that precious status. It's happened rarely, but it's happened. So they account for their write-offs and unreimbursed by Medicare visits and stays for indigent care, but not by AICPA traditional accounting standards, because those don't apply, state requirements drop in here and they can vary widely. So let me give you an example. Bigs can get away with listing a public water fountain as a charity contribution. One in Houston built a beautiful waterfall over the back of their garage, that's charity. And some allow public or corporate private art to count as a benefit to the community. Really? These kind of games are the tip of a much bigger iceberg with them playing us because worst of all, on these annual reports, they write off their charge master rates or let's call them retail rates, not their actual rates. So the written off retail quoted rate is three or four or five times more what they actually get in the marketplace for their services. So calling their reported giving inflated is a really a compliment because it's worse than that. It's a racket. The states have a little wink in and a uh, nod, the community has a wink in and a uh, nod, the hospitals wink, it's a game, they all get it. And in previous shows, We've proven that the AHA and its little sister emerges the two most effective lobbies in all of healthcare, which is the most effective monster lobby in the world. And no state AG or local DA wants to upset that huge campaign open door. So if you've ever read anything that's a survey, there was one that came out yesterday from Protect America's Healthcare. That's basically the American Hospital Association and the Federation of American Hospitals, which are the two big lobbies for the nonprofit and the for-profits banding together as their PR arm. So they're trying to basically protect the hospital's interests and in COVID get federal money which they did beautifully. But maybe just maybe charity hospitals too should pay for the roads that they ride on the sewers they use and the police and the fire. And how about the EMS, the first responders? And how about the post offices and the schools? And let's get federal with parks and military and social welfare. And there's a few more folks that I'm not even mentioning who work in the swampocracy and well, it is endless. Every sign at a charity hospital or a primary care clinic owned by a charity hospital or imaging or surgery centers owned by a nonprofit should say, if they ever put out a sign that says support our troops, they should have to add an addendum. Just not with our money. They are gaming us. It's the ultimate long con and the founding nuns and the ministers of these now corporate monopolies and some meat grinders of souls would simply not recognize this evolution of a once beautiful idea they founded to serve our most vulnerable and our common creator. So they report these highly inflated charity when really deflated to reality is 2% numbers. And so where's the logic please? My kids would say, this is a big whoop, no big deal. So Larry, are you ready for the paradox in this whole story is that we all love one hospital in our hometown. Mine saw to the healthy birth of three wonderful sons, all grown up now, and seven nieces and nephews. Some are grown up and some are still acting like they're babies in the hospital, but they all had a hundred fingers and a hundred toes, those 10 kids, and they're all healthy and accounted for. Yes, sir. Happy days. And the death of my dad, they saw that too, just a few floors up. God love that hospital. I really mean it when I say that. And our model citizens sit on their boards and what honor locally is better Maybe a bank board seat, but we have a mud king and a mud queen here in San Antonio when we dry out the river in November. Some think that's a big thing. Charity hospitals have the best galas in town and hire the most effective fundraisers, say the charity watchdogs that rate that kind of thing. And their wings of their hospitals are named by the wealthiest names in town. And their research and their teaching is funded almost entirely by you and me and Anthony Fauci. And muni bond lawyers and Wall Street types love, 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 love them. Because they have endless bond financing consumption. And the only problem is they can't fill all those beautiful next gen crystal pavilions with enough nurses because the bigs are human meat grinders and they burn out RNs and LBNs at an amazing rate. In fact, of the 156,000 yearly nurses graduating this year and over the next five years, half are going to drop out of medicine by year five. The hospitals just burn through them. Staffing ratios. Okay. I'm guessing MAs have the same burnout since they all seem so young across the board everywhere I go, and they sadly also have dead-end jobs. We are lying to these ladies. They're mostly ladies in nursing and medical assistants, and lots of single moms in my experience in both of those categories. So nurse understaffing ratios today are impossible. So you can't ask a table servitor to take too many tables or cleaning staffer in a hotel to take on too many rooms. All the rooms suffer. The manager gets upset. The staffer quits eventually and the customers just are not happy. But the big difference is people will never die in a restaurant or a hotel and they aren't a patient at a peak lifetime distress, physically, emotionally. No families have been allowed for two years now. So it's definitely emotionally and financially too. They're getting hammered and gouged increasingly. So they're at a peak stress time and they can suffer death and financial deaths at the same time. So, and in fact, I think I nearly maybe I got to take some of this back because I think I might have died in a hotel when my sheets weren't the right thread count. And when my server recently brought it, a my favorite restaurant, Brussels sprouts that were smoked instead of broccolini. I just about died those two times. So maybe there's that, but a true leader staff's responsible. And if not nurse and MA burnout is going to be inevitable and people might die or heaven forbid the CFO might have to readmit. So there's a big pressure for leaders. Staffing and profits are a razor-thin tightrope walk. These workers I'm describing are the backbone. My haircutter Imelda is struggling to become a nurse the last two years, working two jobs and going to school. She's a real catch for some young man, but she's delaying marriage and kids because Imelda wants more than lousy retail wages for the rest of her life. And I hate to tell her, and I'm not going to tell her that the odds are really a 50-50 toss-up for her. Okay, now I know I got to tip her way better, so shut up. OK, so most bigs don't seem to care about the sacrifices of all the Imeldas out there. But maybe, maybe some leaders of some bigs are different. Maybe the bigs themselves are different, too, than my perception. And that's what today's guest is here to explain to me. OK, everybody knows my take on bigs. Any kind of big anything, big systems are far removed from the real people, real problems, and the bigger the big gets. That's precisely why I go dark on these bigs and all these rants big insurers who are also big PBMs these days, big pharma, big devices, big middles like the brokers, the healthcare bigs, as I've said a million times, are the biggest lobby on this spinning blue space rock. And as an industry for the past 20 years, you can take the next four biggest lobbies in the planet, of course, they're all American, and the big healthcare lobby is bigger than Wall Street, Silicon Valley, Big Oil, and Big Defense all combined. I'll say that again, healthcare is bigger than the next four biggest combined, which explains so much wrong with healthcare. Overwhelming, almost every metro is dominated by a monopoly or duopoly pricing power by the bigs, over 90% of US metros, and the big consolidation hasn't taken a breather in 15 years, so monopoly care is only accelerating, not going the other way. The big insurers, same deal, but state duopolies instead of local, and sometimes you'll see a Insurer getting a fight with a local monopoly. It's kind of fun because it's like Battle of the Titans. But generally, I think the insurer is going to win. And Texas is is an example about monopolies. Texas has 45% market share with just one, one of the blues. Arkansas has like 85, 90% with one of the blues. So they're completely owned by uh, one of the Bucas. And that goes for many states in America as they're just completely dominated by a BUCA. Okay, so getting back to it's not black and white of this paradox i love 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 my local monopoly hospital and i know and respected ceo and several board members and you probably feel the same if you're active in your community so here i am trashing bigs just not in my own backyard what a hypocrite so it's a paradox for most of us and the polls reflect these wide views for that reason and depending on who funded the poll but a hospital it's kind of like the last place on earth i want to be if i ever get sick and I can't explain it as well as a friend of the show, Dave Chase, who says this uncomfortable truth this way. When one is in a hospital, you're in a healthcare hurricane. Yet so many hospitals exploit the situation to price gouge, which is mostly legal. And we know it's illegal to price gouge during an actual hurricane, though. So I try to end these on a high note. And In the spirit of ending this on a high note, you're lucky today to meet Sean Strash, who is a kinder, gentler, and deeper take on bigs than I'll ever have. And he's educated me over the years on the virtues of one particular big he knows very well. And yes, he's promised he'll dish on a few games that a CEO plays at the tail end of a quarter to make the numbers. Sean is a self-proclaimed reform CEO of over 20, mostly HCA hospitals. Welcome Sean, my friend, to the show.
1: Thank you, Ron. Thanks very much. It's a real pleasure to be here and uh, an honor. I appreciate the time
0: with you. Great. Well, so before we get going, any comments on what we just said?
1: Yeah. So, uh, good, great intro. I love it. Uh, I love your passion. You and I mirror that. And, um, absolutely it's, you know, we, we do talk about, um, we did talk about a level playing field running hospitals and I, my whole career has been spent on the uh, for tax or for profit hospital side. And I didn't coin that phrase, not for tax. That was a phrase that was coined by some folks I knew, um, you know, back in the day, back in 1990, something, uh, regarding some of the, uh, not for profits that we call not for tax because they all have to make a surplus. That's what they call it on their 501c3 or 1099. And if you pay tax, you call it a profit. So um, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's incredible. You know, just the, the mission that you go to on some of the um, you know, some of the not for tax hospitals, it's always a little ironic to me. They state the mission, but they don't follow it. And uh, you and I have talked before about the number of Patients that are sued for their out-of-pocket, uh, you know, liability, and I would dare say that most of the not for profits are more aggressive than the for-profits. In fact, uh, HCA, for instance, has a policy. We, you know, they they do not sue patients, and and they they just don't. And so I got to say there is a, a wide variation in operations. But as you said, um, you know, the they play with the rules that are, and as Dave Chase says, many of those rules are are perverse.
0: Sean, Sam Hazen, the HCA CEO uh, got his mentorship from Senator Bill Frist, who got his mentorship from his father. In fact, Sam got his mentorship from both of those gentlemen. And um, he did something interesting. He returned 100% of the CARES Act money they he received, which was $6 billion. And HCO didn't furlough one single employee during the pandemic when Ascension and CHI and CHS and Ardent and Tenet and Adventist and... Banner and everybody else did, Christus, they all furloughed employees, including clinical staff. Do you think being founded by a doctor informed HCA's culture?
1: Yeah, no, no, for, for sure. But, you know, um, yeah, it's, uh, they they all operate a little different. I just, I've had experience with many different systems and um, I, I'm not, I'm not plugging anybody, but, uh, you know, it's just, uh, my time with HCA was, was, uh, was really great. They, they, they don't, um for the most part, uh, I have never saw any any patients for anybody not you know not playing by the rules and very uh, very black and white and uh, I mean just for instance right uh, for the pandemic uh, they were given six billion dollars under the CARES Act they paid all that back and didn't furlough anybody but they put many other executives on eighty um, percent of salary and still expected them to to continue working so uh, I you know I've got to say they they uh, yeah certain organizations operate a little different than others with the rules are given. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting
0: they did that because, and my hat's off to them, but there's no other major system that did that. There's a couple of small ones that did that, but nobody of HDA's heft pulled that off. And what do you think that was all about?
1: So um, I was sitting in my living room when we were still down in Naples, Florida with a, um, a CEO of a large uh, public traded, uh, with was a $9 billion uh, position services firm. And uh, he knows uh, the HCA CEO pretty well. And, and uh, we were sitting there, I think it was March 17th. So March 16th of two, 2020 was the lowest trading day for HCA after the pandemic. And so uh, Chris and I were sitting in my living room March 17th. We were going fishing that day. I'd worked for Chris a few times. And a uh, great guy. And he was talking about the concern of, you know, of the healthcare companies and organizations and uh, hospital organizations that... This pandemic is really going to be difficult and it was absolutely it was it presented a whole new set of issues especially from a care perspective as dave chase put as well you know it is a it's a hurricane while while you walk when you walk to the front door um in fact for instance in an icu a patient is touched over 200 times per day just imagine that Mm. Uh, so keeping track of that most patients earlier earlier uh days of COVID all went to the icu were vented and we know how that turned out but we were in my living room, and he said, "Hey, um, you know, uh, he, the HTA is concerned about uh, about what's going to happen." And I said, "You know, I said, Chris, there's a, a lot of really intelligent people at HCA that I re- that I respect, and I got to say that they're they're back in Nashville, and they are going to figure it out. And it's the uh, it's a worldwide pandemic. They're the largest um, uh, hospital provider in the world, and uh, yeah, they're you know their earnings in 2021." made history in the company so they they did figure it out and yep they gave back to the cares act money and so um there's an example of playing by the rules and doing well and also you know um doing what's right
0: yeah they actually doubled their net income last year over the previous year so it's, what a big profit uh, and i thought that would be a bellwether for how well the pandemic is serving the bottom line of other hospitals and it looks like it's a it's, it is a bellwether a lot of hospitals did very very well and i I was looking at the hospitalization charges for the average COVID patient. The lowest is in Maryland, it's 131 grand and it's 472,000 in Nevada uh, for COVID admission. So was COVID a profit moneymaker? I mean, was it- absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah, So it's it's interesting to me um, that this hasn't been made public and uh, maybe this will help. So I think the public needs to know. You know, CMS, uh, the usual way to approve new codes, new revenue capture codes, you know, for, um, you know, codes that mirror the care given so a hospital can, can provide carb, you know, charge capture to, to earn income, which is totally legit. You should get paid for what you do. So uh, 17 codes uh, were approved in April 2020 by CMS. It didn't go through the usual cycle, of course, because there were specific COVID codes. It couldn't, usually a code takes 18 months to get approved. It goes through review period and appeals and yada, yada, yada. So fully understand why it had to get pushed through quickly. But here's the kicker. So there's something called the uh, revenue audit contractor. They have a specific job of doing many things, but one of them is to keep providers honest in terms of patients they admit. So the revenue audit contractor to the RAC, like Novitas and other third parties that contract with CMS, their job is to wear the auditor hat. And so, uh, you know, tr- you know, when you're running a hospital uh, prior pandemic, prior COVID, you always hope for, quote unquote, a good flu season where you have a lot of patients coming in for flu because that's good for the hospital. And, uh, you know, that's again, that's okay. So flu, we considered a very soft admission, meaning that there really isn't any you know, a surgical intervention. You're not cutting, you're not taking out, you're not putting in. A patient's admitted, they go to the floor, they're monitored, they're given antibiotics and fluids, and hopefully over the course of five or six days, they recover, which most of them do. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's a soft admission, meaning that, that monitoring and the care that's given on the floor may not quite meet um, admission criteria, like there's one called Interqual that many of the hospitals use. So Novitas reviews all of those Medicare flu admissions for Medicare, and we'll say, hey, uh, yeah, Strachis Hospital area, you know, those 10 admissions, uh, three of them aren't, aren't real admissions, so Medicare takes them back. So Medicare doesn't pay on those three, and Novitas gets 30% of all the savings on those appeals. And there's a huge appeal process, right, for every system out there the HIM the hospital information management health information management department is typically uh, a pretty fundamental part of any hospital organization you know where physicians are trained to go to other hospitals and help admitting physicians in terms of terminology on the record which is is legit and um you know to get get paid for what you do so uh the rat comes in novitas says hey take back those three admissions and so medicare takes them back and that was always a risk on a soft admission like the flu well, here's a kicker. In April 2020, uh, 17 codes, there are respiratory codes that were basically flu respiratory codes that were adapted to, uh, to COVID, 17 codes. 13 of them, you have to prove or validate the patient had COVID. Four of those codes are for suspected COVID. And here's the the sort of the nail in the coffin on that. Um, CMS said in April 2020, there will be no rack audit for anything COVID-related. So Hospitals are out there and seeing patients, a uh, validated COVID patient and a suspected COVID patient are treated the same way in terms of CDC reported and are also reimbursed the same way. And we've all heard it at about a 30% markup from typical flu admissions. So if you look at the map in uh, 19, uh, I I've did this and posted on LinkedIn a while back for flu in uh, December of 19, uh, the map was dark red Purples for flu. You look at the map in December 2020. Flu is gone. It's bright green. There, there. The incidence of flu is completely gone. So, it's kind of like telling the IRS, "Hey, just trust me. I owe you a thousand bucks," and they going, "All right, good for me. Good enough. Move on." So that's kind of the big secret that uh, isn't being being told out there. That there's no one auditing these admissions, and you know, there's. Very few companies out there have been actually admitted, again, back to HCA, if you go on their COVID statement, they, they put it out there on their COVID statement that they have seen and treated uh, more than any other provider in this country, more verified and suspected COVID patients in the country. So, I mean, at least they're out there telling the story and they're telling the truth.
0: Well, so, so basically the COVID admissions are highly inflated numbers.
1: I think for, uh, yeah, not maybe not for all hospitals, but uh, for many of them, yes.
0: And if the sheriff isn't going to put a posse to go chase the uh, bank robber, there is no crime.
1: Exactly. <laughs> okay.
0: Exactly.
1: All right. Yeah. But, you know, and having some, some inside um, knowledge, I got to say that, you know, the HCA is uh, reporting very, very few uh, suspected. And so, they're again, they're doing it right. I, I, I have no information on the other system, so I don't
0: know. I think they doing, stopped right. doing this in August of last year. They went, went back to their normal. Their income drumbeat
1: yeah there you go so hats off to them
0: for sure Um, so let's talk about the pressure that a hca would face right next door to a really good competitor good methodist or good baptist or good sisters or whatever or divine saint whatever but if you're if you're competing against a nonprofit, how in the world do you battle in that unfair playing field and and i want to couch my question with something that sounds incendiary and it's not meant to be but The stop loss catastrophic carriers hired HPC to study why the HSA facilities are adopting a a pricing methodology that puts them into egregious pricing. So their claims are like dramatically higher with HCA than they are with any other uh, system. And I think it's because of the stress and this pressure that HCA has to compete with nonprofits. Am I even close there or am I in the wrong playing field?
1: Yeah, I think that, so on the outside, Charges seem like a big deal. And I got to say, though, you know, when you're running a hospital, and this is with any company I've ever worked for, uh, you, you know, you typically, um, yeah, your charge master goes up every year and, and you do it in a meaningful manner. You, you know, anything above 10% annual is, uh, there's a term in most commercial payer agreements that uh, anything above 10% you have to disclose and discuss with the uh, payer. So, they're typically under 10%. Um, but the charges, when you're working on the inside, charges aren't as a fundamental as it is on the outside when you're, when you're a payer, PPA, or an insurer. And the reason is most of the agreements, the, the big dollars, right? 80, 90% of your reimbursement in the hospital is coming from the contracts. And a very small amount is coming from the out uh, of pocket, the percentage charges that a patient typically has to deal with. So that being said, um, there's really not a whole lot of focus. There's really not uh, a lot of angst about raising your charges because we really didn't feel like we were hurting anybody, uh, you know, other than, than trying to collect on, um, on uh, you know uh, the percent of charges type agreements that everyone loves if you're running a hospital. If you've got a, a payer that's gonna pay 70% of charges, well, well great, that's when it really pays off. But um, yeah, I got to say that we, you know, we talked about HCA in, in particular, I also think it's because they're a big dog and I was with them in the late nineties, uh, you know, when the OIG came calling and two markets did a couple things that, you know, probably weren't the greatest thing. And it took the whole, the whole company down and they really learned from that. Uh, the compliance program that they put into place is now the compliance program that every system uses. In fact. Part of the corporate integrity agreement that we, we had to abide by was that we had to publish our new policies and procedures, and we did. Every organization out there copied those, those policies and procedures. They paid over a billion dollars. And so, I mean, with that, uh, they're, they're a big target. So two markets brought down a big company because they're publicly traded and something can happen in one market. And if that affects your stock price by 5 or $10 per share, that's significant. Um, I got to say this, that some of the not for tax systems and hospitals, especially ones in some of the smaller markets, they they disregard the they they play a lot more in the gray area in that um, I recall a conversation I had in literally in 2018 in a Missouri market, a two hospital market where we were purchasing services. We were a, a long term acute care hospital in that market purchasing services from a not-for-tax system. And uh, I recall a conversation with the CEO and the CEO said, hey, um, if you want these services, you know, uh, you're know, you going to have to pay more for them if you want to continue getting our patient referrals. So I said, wait, hold on a second. Uh, that's something that you just can't say ever. So I said, let's just couch that. Next call, let's have your attorney on the line because that's no, we are not going to that place. So I say that that was 2018. And, you know, there's a smaller not for tax system that uh, is not under the big radar that some of the the bigger organizations are. So they feel like they can skate a little bit and maybe play in the gray a little more. Mm. You know, I was wondering, Sean,
0: HCA was founded by a doctor, Senator Bill Frist in Tennessee. And You know, today it's much bigger than you ever imagined. 200 hospitals, 2,300 sites of care. It's in two countries, but mostly America. How do you think a doctor as a founder informed and propelled the culture at HCA versus others that weren't formed by doctors?
1: Yeah, he was awesome. Um, Senior first and junior as well. And so I'll just say this, that he had a, um, a phrase that said, good people beget good people. And I, I got to say this: that if I were ever to go back to the to the hospital administration side, uh, you know, it it probably HCA is the only place I'd ever go back to, uh, because of how how they operate. But the um, I, I respect them. So he in uh, late '90s when the OIG came calling, uh, Rick Scott was CEO, and um, he you know Rick Scott left, but uh, Doctor Chris Jr. came back in, and uh, totally changed the culture back to to where the original. Uh, Columbia HCA really HCA first and then Columbia and then back to HCA but um, I gotta say that uh, his his culture with physicians was it's the doctors and the nurses first so I recall my mentor at HCA would come to our hospital and um, he never ever he was a division president and then became eastern group president so over half of the country and he never talked about financials uh, productivity, you know, labor uh, labor uh, rates, or as you said, ratios. You know, I said, hey, um, I want to talk to you these, you know, four or five doctors. And if we meet uh, any, of your, any of your folks in the hall, you need to know their name and at least something about their family. And uh, that was, you know, that was the culture I came up under. So any, any hospital I ever ran, it was that focus. It didn't matter how harsh the corporate office was with other companies I worked for. They uh, always focused, I was focused on my, my, you know, my physicians and my nurses and then patient care, you know, is going to be taken care of after that. And plus little things like you, you put your cell phone number in every patient care packet and you make sure your nurses know that each patient has your cell number. And it's pretty incredible how issues that may have popped up, get fixed before a patient gives you a call. Okay. And again, something I had to learn from, you know, that culture that came up under with Dr. Frist
0: we're gonna we're gonna start another show but i have a couple more questions um i do want to have another show with you soon but um i've met more than a few hca board members in my lifetime here in texas and when i tell them my take on hospitals they don't like my fact set and they don't like my perspective one bit are people like me viewed as like a gadfly or like a pain in the butt or what what do they think of the dave chases and the marty macarees and the ron barshops of the world do they uh, not, they just don't want to hear the truth or are they not like our truth or what's going on there?
1: Well, I think it depends what metrics that you look at. So if you look at metrics, you know, uh, we talked about, you know, uh, with CHS, for instance, you know, they took $700 million in CARES Act funding. Uh, they furloughed staff, clinical, and then between March 20 and 2021, 20 and 2021, by the way, were their best financial years, um, they sued over 19,000 patients for out of pocket. So I, I don't think you can ever have that conversation with HCA because they didn't do any of that. They did the exact opposite. They, did, they, never sued, they will never sue a patient. They, they pay back all their CARES Act funding. And um, you know, in, in terms of uh, the relationships with physicians, it's just, it's just part and parcel different. And, and they furloughed zero staff. So um, I think that conversation with them would be a little different from those, those factoids because they don't affect them. But yeah, on the, on the way you operate a facility, uh, you know, uh, sharp pencils uh, make a bottom line, and uh, you work under the rules that were given. So I, I think it's uh, kind of like Dave says as well, right? This tough to uh, don't fight the system. You know, you've got to find solutions within the system that we're given. So okay. that's, uh, I think, the uh, bottom line on that one.
0: Well, I'm, I'm upset because we have to sign off now, but we're going to pick this back up again very soon. So if you could fly a banner. Sean, overhead, what would that banner say to America?
1: Wow, um, my goodness, I think I think it would say this. If if it was specifically about healthcare, I'd say there are numerous alternative payment solutions. Is what I would say.
0: Yeah, I agree. How can people find you, Sean, if they want to reach out?
1: They can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm under you know Sean Strash, and uh, they can reach out to me via LinkedIn is probably the easiest. Right.
0: All right, thanks, and we'll get you on again soon.
1: Thanks, Ron. Appreciate it very much.
0: Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up, there's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.